0: When I I ran a team at the at the university that I worked at uh, at a medical school where I was a chief innovation officer, the one commitment I made to my team members is that if you come to work with me, I'm going to make one promise to you. I am going to leave you so better off than I found you. It's going to blow your mind. I will make that promise to you. I will leave you far better off.
1: Helping you create loyal customers and loyal employees all through the power of Simplicity. This is the Simple Brand Podcast, now heard around the world, including Helsinki, Finland. I'm your host, Matt Lyles, and this week I'm talking with Nick Webb. Nick's a world-renowned strategist, he's a futurist, he's a best-selling author, and he's one of the top keynote speakers in the world. He works with some of the top brands to help them lead their market in enterprise strategy, customer experience, employee experience, and innovation. Now. Nick was on the Simple Brand Podcast back in episode 74, talking about what customers hate. This time, he's back to talk about lessons from his latest book, One Step Ahead, How to Dominate Your Market with Innovation Leadership. Listen, in today's hyper-competitive environment, the difference between winning and losing really isn't that big of a gap. It's actually pretty small. It's kind of like a race where the fastest runner who crosses the finish line can be just one step ahead. So hopefully that helps keep things a bit less overwhelming and a bit less intimidating for you. Today, Nick and I talk about his lessons to help you keep your organization one step ahead in front of your competition and to help you continuously leveraging disruption so you can keep propelling your organization forward. So here it is. Here's my interview with Nick Webb. Hi, Nick. Welcome back. How are you doing, Matt? Good to be back. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Well, last time you were here, we talked more about customer experience and really the things that customers hate around customer experience. But one of the things that I know that holds true is that what drives customer experience are your employees, and then what drives your employees is the overall experience that you deliver to them through your leadership. So today I'm excited to talk about One Step Ahead, how to dominate your market with innovation leadership.
0: Thanks. I appreciate it. Yes, it was an exciting process to research this book, and I'm really proud of what we were able to create.
1: One of the things that I really enjoyed was creating the metaphor, tying business to uh, to running a race, running a marathon. And, you know, as the race is intensifying here, it's getting harder to stay one step ahead. So, how can we go about staying one step ahead in our leadership?
0: Well, it's a good question. You know, I took, a, as I mentioned earlier, I took a sabbatical. Uh, I've taken a few of those in the last few years to write. And uh, so I actually released three books in a period of uh, a matter of a few months. And one of the books was called Lucid Leadership. And which ties in very closely to one step ahead. You know, we are living in a time of hyper-complexity. And when we think about leading customer experience, human experience, the employee experience, growth and stated strategic priorities, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about our ability to understand the uber-complexity of the outside world, understand the complexity and status of our own enterprise culture. And for leaders, you know, uh, we really need to have a heightened sense of self-awareness about how open we are to the fact that we have transitioned from disruptive innovation to our current state of chaotic innovation. we got to be open to the fact that if we are committed to legacy sameness in a time of uber differentness, we're going to have a serious problem <laughs> on our hand. And if somebody gets nothing else in this book, is that customer experience, marketing, enterprise growth, and strategic results is an
1: innovation activity, plain and simple and i love how you tie that to your leadership or to an individual leadership so why is it why is individual leadership so important in setting that pace and in staying ahead i think that there is sort of these strategic inflection
0: points as grog talks about is that we are we're reaching these forks in the road every day as leaders and the question this sort of binary question is Do I hide out in cubicle nine and do what we've done before and hope nothing bad happens? Or do I lean into the blur, lean into the unknown and do cool things and positively impact the enterprise? That is a question that comes up for all of us every single day. Unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of of leaders and, and, and really team members choose to hide out in cubicle nine, right? Because it's safe. But again, in a time of differentness, sameness is a disaster. We have to create newness, new experiences. And as I talk about in the book, it's the equilibrium between the experiences that we architect and deliver for customers and the experiences that we architect and deliver for employees. And I can give you some brand examples. I mean, take a look at Dutch Brothers, for an example. There was a time in Starbucks history that you would go in to buy overpriced, mediocre coffee, in my opinion, and uh, you would go there, but it was cool, right? It was a great environment and people that greeted you in a friendly way. That's a great way to start your day. And that was really the secret sauce because, you know, after all, you can make coffee at home. Their secret was an environment that was warm and inviting and people that were warm and inviting. But as Starbucks scaled, they went from the experiential to the transactional, and that is where most people fail. If you're just transacting overpriced, mediocre coffee, your days are numbered, right? So just three days ago, I was over at Dutch Brothers Coffee, and I was there for a while because the line took me 15 minutes to get through. In fact, there was a police officer directing traffic to allow people to go past the two or three block long line to get overpriced, mediocre Dutch Brothers coffee. Wow. Plus the street, literally across the street at Starbucks, there was nobody in the line. There was nobody. This is eight o'clock. Nobody in the drive through line. So what was the difference between Starbucks mediocre overpriced coffee and Dutch Brothers, mediocre, high-priced coffee. Now, I say that kind of kidding because I actually like both of their coffees, but it's right. nice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it makes the story more interesting. Uh, but when you go through Dutch Brothers, I was there, I was at a, I was on my way to a speaking engagement. I stopped there for a coffee on my way to the airport three months ago. And this was my first opportunity to actually go because I've walked into this cubicle that uh, Michelle keeps me in where I have to work every day. And
1: uh,
0: <laughs> I'm like I'm like, veal, like locked into this box.
1: I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. And so I actually was able to get out and see sunlight and day, daylight. And uh, But as I pull in, the girl that worked here opens up the door and goes, or the sliding window says, Nick, where are you traveling to today? And I instantly thought that's either stocky ex-girlfriend creepy or that was pretty cool, right? Like, wait, you remember little old me? Wow. But that's their sauce. That's their secret sauce. They have an employee engagement strategy of fun, buoyancy and happiness. And they force buoyancy, fun and happiness on the unwilling victims that come to Dutch Brothers every day. No matter how cranky you are that day, they will not have it. They are going to change the trajectory of your day. And that's what they're selling an experience. So. You couldn't make that happen if that employee was just a transactionalist. And I think that's something that we need to realize. We also found in one step ahead is that the happiest organizations were the most innovative and the most innovative organizations had the happiest culture. So creating this equilibrium between happy employees and happy customers, I think is the secret sauce for 2023 and
1: beyond. Oh, absolutely. And I think that helps to be able to stay on top of any possible disruptions that could be coming down the pike instead of relying on the sameness, relying on the status quo. Right. And also
0: insights. You know, we talk a lot about in terms, look, at the end of the day, when you're an enterprise, your job is to find out what people want, create it, and then deliver it to them. The problem is, is just like with the transactionalism that occurred at Starbucks, We have started to use promoter scores and surveys and blah, 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 to try to get sterile, non-actionable, erroneous data about employees and about customers. It's not that easy. In my practice, we work with our clients to develop CX and HX hackathons, where we actually ask them, just like I talk about in my book, What Customers Hate, we find out what they hate and what they love. Let me give you an example. There was a large client of mine that has well over 100,000 employees that wanted to get their leaders together after the pain and misery of the lockdown of C-19. And so they brought them all together and they allowed me to do a customer, I mean, employee experience hackathon. And I did something that's really scary that you should never, ever do. I asked (laughs) employees, not what do you love and do you feel like you're, you know, a typical survey asks, you know, does your manager support you? Do you feel like you're being, that you'd like your environment? That's not the question. Right. I mean, that's for two reasons. One, everybody that fills out an employee questionnaire, they know that the IT department, even if that's an anonymous survey, they're sure that they're, oh, and by the way, my Jill in sector nine just said you're a tool. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so they're never going to say anything bad on a, on an employee survey. And yet the survey industrial complex has made billions of dollars selling fake surveys about what customers love and what employees love and hate. That's just so wrong. Anyway, we found forty-six serious problems that were brewing with this organization. Now, this organization had and he was trying to find fourteen thousand new employees to come work for them. Wow. Fourteen thousand, and they and here you have somebody come in conduct the love hate hackathon. They found forty-six things that were deal killers for the employees. We present them to the client. The client says. I mean, now keep in mind, these cost almost nothing to fix. And they said, yeah, we're not interested in fixing stuff. We just wanted to find out what they hated. Literally. And so guess what? They're still trying to find 14,000, except now it's 22,000. Because, right. They can't retain employees. They can't attract employees. Their glass door ratings are horrible and i found there's always a direct corollary between glassdoor ratings how much your employees like you and yelp and google ratings on how much customers hate and like you they always track together
1: oh that makes a lot of sense i mean that yeah, that 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 feels like common sense but i don't think enough people talk about that uh, that correlation between the two 100% it's
0: it's a, it's a unicorn to them like yeah we don't get it but you know look one of the, there there are unemployed people and there are talented people But there are no unemployed, talented people, right? (laughs) Right. So if you want to run your organization successfully, you need mission-critical talent. To get mission-critical talent, you have to jack them. You have to poach them from somebody else. And the only way you do that is deliver great experiences, build great cultures. And for most organizations, they don't believe it's possible. But the good news is it's not only possible, it's guaranteed. Uh, typically, these initiatives have 10, 20, 30, 40x return on investment in just a matter of a few weeks. Their in-perpetuity benefits are hundreds and thousands of times the return on the time investment. So I, I don't know why everybody doesn't do it, but um, they don't.
1: Well, and I'm curious if it comes from just that that status quo mindset, not not calling it status quo, but that mindset of, well, this is what leadership is. And this is the way that we've always done it. And this is how we are able to, I guess, demand respect from our employees.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they come from the, you know, I was raised, my dad taught me as a young lad to trade my time on planet earth for cash. That's what everybody did. You go to college, you get a job, you give them your time on, on planet earth and they get you cash in return. That's so 2021 right? Right? (laughs) It's so 23. That is not a thing anymore, right? What people want now is they want three things. Number one is they want to believe in your mission. They want to believe that your mission matters. They want to believe that when they're talking to somebody, uh, you know, about what they do, they want to have, they want to believe in that mission. The second thing is they absolutely 100% demand that you are helping them author their own evolutionary journey. And that's why our clients, we actually build an individual growth plan for each and every employee. What do you want in this job? Not just financially. What do you want? What do you want to, what do you want to learn? Where do you want to go with us? What does success look like to you? And then when you build that and you surgically connect, uh, workforce development and opportunities and their ability to cross pollinate in other departments and so on. When you actually do this stuff, their loyalty to you is unbelievable. And loyalty increases your productivity by 40%. It increases presenteeism. It significantly improves return on human capital. And, you know, most importantly, it's the right thing to do, right? Right. The opportunity as leaders to have a positive impact in other people's lives. I mean, that's, that should be your one motivator right there. But then the third thing that they really want is they want to feel like your organization is doing good. They want to feel like that you're helping people. And when you can do all three of those things, make sure they're connected to a mission that matters in a way that's authoring their evolution, in a way that serves other people, that's the culture that drives the best customer experience. It drives sustainable and predictable revenue growth and enterprise growth. It builds brands. But here's another thing that it does that most people don't realize. We obsess in customer experience about insights. And 90% of the crap that's out there is crap. It doesn't provide actionable insights. Right, right. I mean, I went to, I worked with a client, a large hospital that worked with one of the top organizations to get patient sentiment data. They spent $7 million on this data. We said $7 million, which is about right for hospital change because they, hospital systems. And so I said, well, that's interesting because your experiences that you deliver to patients is just beyond bad. So who is the keeper of this data? And they, they said, well, let's uh, go over to building nine and then we go to building nine and we go to, well, it's a. not upstairs. It's downstairs. I'm not making this up. It's in the basement. In the basement. It's around the basement. Yeah, it was like something out of a, out of a horror movie. I thought I was gonna. I thought it was being you know, tricked into this uh, crime scene. Right?
1: Beyond guard. <laughs> right,
0: be guard, right? Beyond guard. I open the door and there's like cobwebs and stuff. And there's this guy sitting at a table, and he's sort of the data librarian. And so he gets up and waddles over to this area and brings back, you know, blows the dust off these things, opens them up. Nobody's ever used them. They're non actionable and, and probably better that they didn't use them. But the point is, is that we have this sort of uh, uh, psycho anesthesia, this sense of comfort knowing that we're getting forms filled out. Yet at the end of the day, we never really act upon them. Happy employees that are co creators and collaborators that are doing things like customer insight challenges that are leveraging enterprise social networks. They can get 60% better returns on stated enterprise strategy by collaborating with the problem-facing, opportunity-facing, and customer-facing employees. These are your rock stars. Let's get the insights from them,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. Something I learned recently from one of my friends as it relates to, you know, uh, surveying your employees and, and trying to, you know, trying to get like the really good insights from them. And this question is just so telling that I don't think enough leaders are asking their employees is when you're asking these questions, also include the question, do you have confidence that your leadership will take this feedback and actually do something with it? It's a great question.
0: But again, what we have found Is that just the fact that that company is asking them in a form that's traceable through IT. If you were to say at the end of the survey, if you were to ask one final question, do you believe that this survey is actually confidential and is non-discoverable? And they'll say no. Wow. So what does that mean to every question there? You know, they're not going to say any of that. They don't care about you wanting data. They care about saving their own bacon. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, it says employee surveys are the worst example of how you have to have listening sessions. You have to have guided ideation sessions. You have to do happiness hackathons. We're doing three or four happiness hackathons a month now. And the insights that we get are unbelievable. We take those insights, we turn them into programs, we deliver the programs and the employees are going, wow, they got us together. They asked us really, really impressive questions. They were bold enough and brave enough to ask us what we didn't like. We told them, and they moved to fixing it that's incredible you talk about the fastest way to impact your culture uh, it's really through being able to, to, to you know look i uh, the other day i presented uh in one of my keynotes to 74 thousand mayo clinic employees 74000 because their ceo is one of the smartest people i've ever met in my life and he's also honest and has great integrity he said I want happiness and joy to be an enterprise priority. And while all the other health systems are, are scrambling to attract talent, he's attracting talent because they really are honest and sincere about their desire to build a culture of joy. I love that. And it really starts with the board or the CEO. But if you can do that, you can lead organizations that drive sustainable, predictable growth all day long.
1: Oh, yeah. Especially if you repeat it and if you make sure that your leadership all the way down at every single level keeps repeating it and keeps focusing yes. on it instead of just simply saying it one time at one Yeah, time. yeah. No, good point. Downward. Really good point, Matt, because it's not a one and done, right? It's a yeah. it's basically
0: a loop, right? yeah And you're constantly improving upon it. You also have to build an internal communication plan to explain to people that we heard you. This is what we learned. This is what we're doing. And to your point, you build out things like enterprise social networks where they have specific challenges to give everybody a chance to collaborate around enterprise problems.
1: Well, when you give these employees the opportunity to sit down, collaborate, sit down, provide their insights with the actions and the programs that are created after that, how simple is it to get some of those programs in place?
0: Well, I'll give you some example. there uh, In this one client that we were dealing with, For 15 years, if you were to ask anybody in that organization, what is the one thing you hate about your job? And they say, I have to park five blocks away. Now, this is a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar corporation, and their employees are parking five blocks away. Now, is it an easy fix? No, but there was a fix, right? Instead of having people walk, they developed uh, a, a really cool shuttle system that literally every minute another shuttle bus is taking people up to the front. And then they bought an adjacent property for the express purpose to do a multi-level parking. So they showed an itinerant fix, and then they showed a long-term fix. It's going to cost them thirty million dollars, but it is the single biggest angst of everybody that works there. In fact, it's a safety concern. It has a lot of uh, issues. So that got fixed, and it was the the credibility that they got from that was just unbelievable, right? And then there was another thing that they said. We don't feel like we're growing here and we want to learn how to communicate better. We want interpersonal and professional communication training. We want training on how to work at home. We want to know how to compartmentalize our life and how to be more productive and our at home. We had leaders that said, we want to know how to lead our remote teams. This is a whole new world we're living in with remote employees. Right. We, we found off-the-shelf, dirt cheap and inexpensive system and we built out a landing page. Which was the, which was branded as their, as their growth page and people can sign up and, and it was absolutely free to all the employees. They, they built workshops. They, they answered their question and actually did it. Now we have, I would say about 50% of the time leaders ignore it. They just don't do it. But the ones that do do it, the benefits are just unbelievable. I mean, if you only care about money, this is the thing to do. But if you only care about humanity and goodness for goodness sake, it's the right thing to do. Right. It's the right thing to do on both planes. Um, and if you don't understand the business case around it, then you're, you're struggling with math. And if you don't, um, understand the humanity of it, you, you're struggling with self-awareness. This is the right thing to do. And it is definitely what's required. You know, I think people, they see unemployment. They see a lot of layoffs. What they're missing is people are getting laid off that aren't valuable. You know, we have uh, so many organizations where you have employees that have a quarter of a job and a half of a job right? So those people that have half jobs don't get to work there anymore. If they have a quarter of a job, they don't get to work. But the people that have a real job that are really moving the needle, the mission-critical people, you can't find them. You just can't. And the only way you can get them is attract them with culture.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if you're not providing that right culture, then you know that that somebody's going to snatch those people up from you. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you mentioned, I, I really appreciated this was that when you take on some of these actions, like when when you get the insight, when you get the feedback, and then you actually take that action on, it builds your credibility. And I think that encourages your employees to speak up even more. Oh, you know what? We said something and they did something to solve it. I think we can also talk about this other problem that we have. It's unbelievable.
0: You know, I, I'll do give you a little secret. I have a multimillion dollar consulting business. You know what my secret is? I talked to the employees and asked them what I'm supposed to put in my report. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do for a living. Right. I'll give you an example. I was brought into a company because they were losing $17 million a week. They couldn't figure out why they brought in forensic accountants. They brought in management consultants and they said, we can't figure this out. All of a sudden our inbound revenue dropped by $17 million a week. And so we don't know what to do and in sheer desperation they brought it leaderlogic in and we came in we looked at it across the customer journey so the first touch point in the customer journey we did it we did a an, an ethnographic analysis to find out if there's anything from an ethnographic perspective in terms of adverse brand dialogue that was that was uh keeping people from wanting to buy from them and then the next thing that we did is we went into that what we call the first touch point into their inbound the telemarketing center so we bought everybody pizza and we sit down and said okay let's talk why is this happening and they go uh we used to have a three- minute wait now we have a 17 minute wait I go wait a minute you're telling me you went from a three minute wh- hold time to a 17 minute hold time and virtually the day that happened your sales dropped off yeah duh <laughs> Well, Makes- has anybody asked you you know ask you what's going no nobody ever asked us so I walk into the controller's uh, office with this uh, with the CEO and I go hey guys did you do this on this day well let's take a look at your revenue drop oh well, it was almost the same day, right? My point is we have problem opportunity and customer-facing stakeholders that are geniuses. If we can just collaborate and co-create with them, we can run superstar organizations. We look at them as transactional robots. We treat them as if they're a machine and not a human. It makes for a lousy place to spend your day. And it means that we're not really positively impacting other people.
1: That one statement that you said that, that they said was, but- Nobody ever asked us. Um, yeah. How how valued do you think those employees feel in their job? Because nobody even asked them. Right. Yeah. And then in that particular
0: case, you know, we uplifted them to a superstar. They allowed us to bring in some collaborative work. And all of a sudden we have this pipeline of great market data, of operational data. Look, if you want to increase profitability, if you want to reduce costs, if you want better returns on, on stakeholder value, if you want to find new innovations to deliver to the marketplace, if you want to have successful commercialization launches, all of it comes with, with accurate, actionable, novel insights. All of that, most of it comes from the people that are already in your red brick building. Uh, there are other places we have a company called Real Ratings where we do some different things to get insights. But, um, you know, really the truth of the matter is uh you you don't have to spend a lot of money with XYZ management consulting firm. This is grassroots stuff. You got to start with the foundation of getting out of the transaction. Transactionalism in customer experience and marketing will destroy you. You know, chat GTP is a transaction, right? Uh now we're moving towards emotive and empathetic robots, right? So if you don't want to get replaced with empathetic robots and AI, you better learn how to go back to being human because so many things are transacted now. And the only
1: competitive advantage we have in, in the current landscape
0: is our ability to make human connections.
1: Yeah. And you know, with those human connections, we think with whether it's with our customers or our employees, our team members, or even our vendors. When I think about one of the things that really drives loyalty with people, it's that feeling of being valued. I feel valued by this organization. I feel valued by this leadership and all these things that you've know that you been talking about, like helping them on their journey, including them in the problem solving. To me, that would help people feel more valued in their role. Absolutely. And, it, and a lot of people look at it. Uh, you know, I, I co-wrote my book, Lucid Leadership,
0: with my son, Chase, who was 23. And so we had a chance to really talk about, and he and I now do a keynote together, but we talk about old guy, young guy, right? And it's amazing the way Zoomers and millennials see the universe versus those of us that are either millennials or Boomers or whatever. And although I don't like pigeonholing, as you know from my book, What, uh, what Customers Hate, I don't like uh, pigeonholing people through market demography. But we have all become very different collectively. I think that we are now uh, sort of monolithically wanting to have more of a human connection. And what I mean by that is that what I discovered in my book, Happy Work, is that the happiest employees are those that see a connection between the uniqueness of who they are and how they contribute to the enterprise, right? So if they're an artist and they get the ability to express their art, and they see the connection of their art to an initiative that moved the enterprise forward. It is absolutely poetry. It's beautiful. It, you can't, that person will never leave you and will always be the most loyal employee when what we do is who we are. And we can show the linkage between the work that we do and the things that we love and believe in. I deal with a lot of older executives that struggle with this. Um, because in many ways uh they have become zoo animals, right? And they live in this zoo and they wait for the meat to come into the cage. And the last thing they want to do is upset the zookeeper. So everything they do is about being obedient and about being compliant to dysfunctional legacies in many cases. And I think uh, those organizations are at risk of failure. In the book, One Step Ahead, the proclamation that I make there is that everything we're talking about in terms of customer experience, employee experience, everything we're talking about in terms of innovation. All comes from our ability to realize that all of these things are an innovation initiative. And what's weird about me, you know, I started my career as a technologist. I have forty patents uh, for technologies ranging from one of the world's smallest medical implants to one of the first wearable technologies. And I still work in a lab every day. My job—I don't work in an office; I work in an AI lab. So I see the world from, I think, a little more of a. I, I see all of these disciplines a little more scientifically. I see them as derivatives of validated research of what actually works. But the weirdness of all this is, is that it still boils down to the humanity of it all. It's about how we impact uh, everybody. And that's why I tell my clients, don't do a customer experience initiative without doing a uh, employee experience initiative and vice versa.
1: They have to go together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're linked and they're intrinsically linked. And then when we think about this, we've talked about this from the high level in regards to leadership to the employee experience. But in one step ahead, I think that this takes it down to the individual leader as well. So like not just at your senior leadership level, but leadership with every single leader in your organization, here's what you can do to uh to buck the status quo of how you've been leading your team, and you've developed four behaviors that make up what you call your value leadership model that helps leaders stay one step ahead. So can you walk through that model? And those four behaviors were, you know, inspire, connect, adapt, and respect. Yeah.
0: When you take a look at everything as it relates to leadership, it really does boil down to the fact that there is a playbook. Right, right. And so, the first thing that we have to do is we have to inspire our teams to really believe in what we're doing. As I mentioned before, the inspiration piece comes from the fact that we do what we say we're, we we want them to do. That we are that we're honest, that we're predictable, that we're respectful, that we engage them in a in a way that that is really beautiful. Um, we, in, in addition to inspiring them, we engage them in in a variety of ways and. You know, what is really interesting to me is this new concept of asynchronous engagement, which is something that uh, I started researching actually after I wrote the book, because we're now leveraging tools that are very much like Snapchat or even text, where we have continuous dialogue that are asynchronous so that they're communicating to certain members of our teams in a way in which they like to be uh, engaged. I think another issue, as I mentioned in those principles, is that you know we really don't understand what it means to respect somebody. We assume respect is not being mean. Uh, we are that uh, whatever. Respect is a much bigger investment than what most people realize, but it is really kind of the the weaponization of successful leadership is respect. And that means really taking the time to get to understand that we call it personas in the book I think I referred to the archetypes. We want to know, you know, kind of what are the things that you as an employee hate and what are the things that you love? And how can we square up the way in which we assign work to you and the way in which we acknowledge and engage you that's respectful to the way you see the universe? And when you do that, your efficiencies double, your employees love you for it, and these people are incredibly loyal and productive.
1: We've talked about like, like old school leadership. And I think a lot of times, you know, too many leaders, or at least leaders from the past, have just assumed that respect comes with the title that they're given. I'm at. The, I'm in this position. I'm in this role. I have this title. Therefore, uh, everyone should respect me for that.
0: What I always tell my clients in our coaching sessions is that you're a value dispenser. Because when you can get outside of your own egocentric self and you become a value dispenser, you begin to realize that your job is really a coaching job where you're providing value to the people that are willing to uh, to follow your lead. Some of the greatest, uh, you know, leaders um, and especially innovative leaders are those that are really nothing more. I saw a great meme or quote today that said, you know, great leaders know that they're not the smartest person in the room, right? right? Because when you think you're the smartest person in the room, you probably have shut yourself off from learning, right? And so I think one of the challenges that I think a lot of organizations face is they hire the wrong people uh and this isn't talked about much but you know go to In-N-Out Burger In-N-Out Burger is obsessed about hiring the right people how do you have somebody make burgers and deliver burgers all day and you you swear that you are just in, at a Maserati dealership yeah. right they treat you as if you matter uh they're they're fun they're smart they're articulate they're respectful they're um they're not disheveled right uh, there's one restaurant chain, I won't mention any names, that they finally gave up on human connection and started to move towards kiosks and towards automated d- restaurants because they really don't believe that you can have people at that income level deliver great value. But, you know, the secret to In and Out Burger is that, you know, there is an opportunity for personal evolution. That's the one pe- thing that people don't realize about that model and so many other great organizations is, you know, if you're running, if you're a manager of an In and Out Burger store, you can make a, about what a lawyer makes absolutely right? yeah yeah, yeah uh, but it,
1: it's it's like well into the six figures
0: yeah oh absolutely yeah and and they love you they respect you they, they treat you like family you're you're part of the of the of the the warmth of the organization. you spend time at the, the corporate offices you your leadership team takes your phone call, you're considered royalty. Within the In-N-Out family, if you're a store manager, anybody that works there, and so you know how does that happen? It happens by being very judicious. I, I blast uh, in my book, uh, Lucid Leadership, these personality tests. It's ridiculous. These personality tests are a joke. You, you need to really understand who people are by spending a lot of time in the interviewing and multiple interviewing processes to really understand how they see the world because. I think there's a place to to solve dysfunctional and personality disorders, but it's not really at the workplace. That's not what we have the time and resources to do, right? So if somebody's really broken, we probably can't fix them anyway. What we really want to find is is good people, and we want to be able to give them a track. And that's what in and out does so well. Um, and while other people are giving up on the human connection, they're doubling down on it. And same with, with uh, Dutch Brothers and same with every other great brand right now is they have become, in a time of digitization and hyperconnectivity and hyper-complexity, they're moving all that stuff aside and saying, it's about people. Let's, let's double down on the
1: humanity. That's it. Yeah, it should be about your people. And that speaks to some of the things you've mentioned before, You know, uh, focusing on helping your people on their journey, whatever their journey is, like what, what they want to learn, what they want to excel at, where they want to go in their career.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I have a, a client right now that, uh, you know, one of my leaders, they'll develop growth groups and these growth groups will represent eight or, or nine people that report to them. And the growth group is not there for for the enterprise under any circumstances. It's there about how can we, how can I as a leader help you get to where you want to go? Three of the people in the, his growth group actually wanted to leave the company and he wanted, uh, they asked if you could help me get some certificates so I can move on to a better paying job. He said, absolutely. Let's get you set up because you know what? The one commitment that, and I've made this with Maya when I, I ran a team at the, at the university that I worked at, uh, at a medical school where I was a chief innovation officer, the one commitment I made to my team members is that if you come to work with me, I'm going to make one promise to you. I am going to leave you so better off than I found you. It's going to blow your mind. I will make that promise to you. I will leave you far better off. And when I left the university, university, I personally had them elevated to higher directorship jobs. For the ones that stayed, and the ones that left are actually still working for me. So you know the point that I'm making is that when we as leaders can make that commitment, I'm going to leave you off far better than I found you. That is the hallmark of a rock star leader.
1: That is, and what leaders need to understand is when you take that approach. Then your team, your organization, your your company, it becomes a uh, it becomes a destination, um, a uh, desired destination for other people. People will want to come work for you because of that. Absolutely,
0: and I think that you know again, I think the big message with one step ahead is that if we want to get one step ahead, we have to realize a couple of things. Number one is that over the last fifty years, we lived in this space that I call symmetrical innovation. Back in the good old days, you know, 15 years ago, pretty much there wasn't complete levels of digital ubiquity and digital disruption and all the sociological changes and so on. Back then, it was pretty simple. We knew what to create. We knew who our customers were. Channels were very clear. Economic models were very clear. That was symmetry. And another way to look at that is it was slow and the nature of innovation was small. And then about 15 years ago, we moved into this thing that everybody loves to talk about, disruption. And really a better way to look at disruption is disruption means that we move from symmetrical innovation to disruptive innovation. Instead of being slow and small, it's fast and big. Changes happen fast and the nature of the change is really, really big. Well, after C19, it was an, an accelerant and it moved us into what I call chaotic innovation. Chaotic innovation is asymmetrical. It's amorphous and it's insanely fast and it is insanely big. In fact, I call it the blur. And the best organizations have to say, I'm not going to recoil from the blur. I'm going to lean into the blur. I'm going to understand the, the DNA, the molecular structure of this new marketscape, of this new workforce, of this new customer that are hyper, hyper demanding. And I'm going to leave because I'm willing to do that. One step ahead is about you making a commitment to leaning into the blur, recognizing the fact that everything that you do in your success of your business is an innovation activity, plain and simple. And most people go, well, yeah, Nick, what is an innovation? Innovation has a very simple definition. It means the creation of new value
1: that serves your customer and your business. That's it. Yeah. And I think it needs to be constant. It can't just, like like we were talking about earlier, can't just be a one and done activity. What's yeah, that? yeah, Yes, you can be a disruptor one day, but if you just stick with what, what you've just created in the future, then you're going to be disrupted.
0: Absolutely. We call it innovation pipeline, right? It's continuous. Okay. We put stuff in the funnel, which we call the FFE. We put it in the fuzzy front end of the funnel. Some stuff gets thrown out. Some stuff goes to the next stage of business case validation. So there's processes involved to make this fun. You know, leaning into the blur is a lot more fun than recoiling from it. You know, if nothing else, you want to have a good time. I'm going to be 65 this summer. And I got to tell you, I'm still having a blast leaning into the blur. And I think that's something I encourage every, especially younger people. I mean, the blur is cool. You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff in there. Lean into it. Right
1: yeah well, and you know like a, a lot of times, especially when there's some some big thing that you know people are curious about, some people are leaning into, some people are afraid of, I like to look at it and say like, okay, what does this make possible? Yeah. Oh, here are the opportunities with this now, right.
0: hundred percent.
1: yeah All right, Nick, one last question for you. If you were to create a soundtrack for one step ahead, what songs would you include? Well, I have a couple of them, but before I do that, now this is going to be shocking.
0: This is a little shocking. I, I, I don't know that I usually disrobe for one of oh. my interviews, but today.
1: <laughs> oh, wow!
0: <laughs> I'm going to disrobe and show my colors, right?
1: <laughs> oh, love that! <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know what? We're we're twinsies today. <laughs> How embarrassing that we biceps. wore the same so, thing. Yeah, I should <laughs> have
0: know, worked a little bit more in the biceps before I decided to take my shirt off. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I think uh, I I think Aretha Franklin, respect is a uh-huh. great way to look at all of this, right?
1: There you go. And I
0: think, uh, you know, it's kind of almost funny. The great philosopher and the genius, Miley Cyrus, right? <laughs> uh, it's the clown. Genius. Right? That song, oh, it's the, oh, Klon, yes. the dopey kind of corny song. But you know, when you think about it, We're not in this to get to the top of the hill. We're in this to do the climb. And if we can do
1: the climb in a way where we get to lean in the blur and have fun, I think it's mission accomplished, right? That's it. Absolutely. All right. Well, Nick, I've learned a lot from you, learned a lot from your books and learned a lot from our discussion today. But where can people go to learn more?
0: So you can get uh, the book, of course, on Amazon. It'll be out in uh, audio. Uh, Let's see. I think it'll be out in audio in... uh, uh the first week of February, it's now available on Kindle and paperback. Also, for more information about the work I do to help organizations out, that's simply go leaderlogic.com. And of course, my speaking is really simple. It's just nickwebb.com. And uh, thanks for, for
1: allowing me to mention that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you again for coming back on the show. I'm grateful for your time. Hey, thanks for the shirt. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. It looks great on yeah. you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Nick Webb. So go and learn more from him at GoLeaderLogic.com. Whether it's customer experience, innovation strategy, culture, sales force, or leadership development, you're going to find lots of ways for Nick to help your company achieve sustainable growth. And if you're interested in bringing Nick in to speak to your team about the lessons you heard today, then you can do that at NickWeb.com. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast podcast, go ahead and hit the subscribe button because it's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Juliana Marolanda. Juliana is the founder of scale time where they've helped hundreds of agency owners and leaders get their lives back by developing systems to save time, add employees and manage their growth to create lean, mean profitable machines. Juliana and I discuss her lessons to help you simplify your business and your team in a way that gives you real freedom to focus on the right work. That needle moving work so that you're able to do the work you want, how you want, whenever you want. Now that's freedom. So go ahead and subscribe and you'll automatically get Juliana's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple.